My wife and I enjoy reading books to each other out loud. We have done this for years on family vacations in the evenings, and we especially like mysteries. Uh, right now, we're reading a, uh, a series of books whose hero is this Scottish policeman from a little village in northern Scotland named Hamish Macbeth. When we're done with Hamish, we'll move on to some other detective. But one of the reasons we like mysteries is because they have a way of drawing you in. They're, they're participative. They force you to be a detective. You know, Sue and I read the books to each other. We'll often stop and we'll say, well, who do you think's done it? Okay, who do you think's behind this murder? Was that a clue? You know, I think that was a clue. Do you think that was a clue? So what I'm going to ask you to do today is to be a detective. Okay, we're looking for clues for the existence of God. Okay, we're detectives looking for clues for the existence of God. We're in the second week of a five-part series called I Have My Doubts. We launched this series last weekend, Easter weekend. I told you I had recently come across a survey that indicates the, the number one obstacle to people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering their lives to Christ, is doubts. You know, in, in fact, people who are exploring the faith not only have their doubts about God, even convinced believers sometimes wrestle with doubts. So we're doing this five-week series, uh, One Doubt Per Week. Today we're looking at the most basic doubt there is. The existence of God. How do we know that God exists? Now, when it comes to the existence of God, I want to tell you right up front, there are no absolute proofs. Okay, there are no absolute proofs. There are just pieces of evidence. There, there are just clues. Some of you are thinking, well, why no absolute proofs? I mean, if God exists, why, why doesn't God make himself known in a way that's totally undeniable? A theologian has answered that question with these words. He says, God has provided each of us with the opportunity to make an eternal choice, to accept him or reject him. In order to ensure that our choice is truly free, he, he puts us in an environment that is filled with evidence of his, his existence, but without his direct presence. A presence so powerful that it could overwhelm our freedom and thus negate our ability to reject him. And then this closing line, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe, yet he has also left some ambiguity so as not to compel the unwilling. Let me read that last line again. It says it so well. God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe, yet he has also left some ambiguity so as not to compel the unwilling. Did you follow that? Okay, God gives us ample evidence evidence but not absolute proofs he's given us clues that point to his existence which we can accept or we can reject one of christianity's uh, fiercest contemporary critics is a guy named richard dawkins dawkins is a scientist he's an atheist He's written a New York Times best-selling book called The God Delusion. In The God Delusion, Dawkins says that faith in God is the great cop-out. He says, faith is the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate the evidence. So people of faith, they just don't think. They don't evaluate the evidence. Well, I couldn't disagree more with Mr. Dawkins. You know, believers in God don't ignore the evidence for God's existence, just the opposite. Believers, in many cases, have studied the evidence, they followed the clues, and the clues have led them to God. 
In fact, I would dare say that Mr. Dawkins is the guy who ought to go back and look at the evidence another time or two. Yeah. I love uh, the book that someone has written in response. Dawkins has his critics. One of his critics has written a book called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I like that. You know, I've read about half of the book in preparation for this series. It's a great book. We're carrying it at resource at each of our four campuses. If you're looking for something extra to read in the midst of this doubt series, I don't have enough faith to be an evidence written by uh, two brilliant Christ followers. And if you're looking at resource for another book, uh, there's also one there, The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel. We talked about Lee last week. Uh, Lee was a one-time legal affairs editor for the Chicago Tribune, a card-carrying atheist who investigated the Christian faith and came away a believer. So if you want some more information. Today we're going to look at four convincing clues for God's existence. If you haven't taken your outline out yet, I encourage you to do so. These are clues that will help you have a sense of confidence about the existence of God, but also this will be something to share with your friends who are skeptics. Clue number one, creation. And I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 19. Okay, the book of Psalms is right smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And while you're turning to Psalm 19, let me regale you with some information about our universe. Okay, you're, you're aware of the fact that the earth orbits around the sun. Do you know how far the sun is from the earth? Call it out if you know. Good, we got a science teacher out there. All right, you call it out at Bartlett and Blackberry Creek and DeKalb, 93 million miles. Now, let me put that in perspective for you. If we wanted to take a trip to the sun and we jumped on an airplane today and the airplane was traveling at 500 miles per hour, it would take us 21 years to get to the sun. 21 years to get to the sun. And if we said, well, I don't want to go to our star, let's go to a, another star. What's the next nearest star? Do you know? Call it out if you know. It's actually a cluster of stars, Alpha Centauri. Now we jump on our airplane, we're going to go to Alpha Centauri. It's not going to take us, you know, 21 years. It's going to take us 6 million years to get to the next closest star. And if you're, you know, you're kind of a prig and you're not satisfied with the stars in your universe, even though there are 150 billion of them, and you say, well, let's go to another Let's go to another galaxy, not the Milky Way. Let's go to Andromeda, the next nearest galaxy. We'll, we'll jump on our airplane. It won't take us 21 years or 6 million years. It will take us 4.2 trillion years to get there. And if we decide, well, let's just keep visiting stars. We're going to go from one star to the next till we've seen them all. It's going to take forever because there are billions upon billions of stars in the universe, more stars than there are grains of sand on the seashore. Now that's the backdrop for the scripture I'd like to read to you, the opening four verses of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. King David, who wrote this, he says, do you, do you struggle with the existence of God? i got proof for you. Just go outside and look up, especially on a starry night. Who do you think created all these? Now, the skeptic objects. The skeptic says, well, we got to take into account the fact that King David, who wrote this, he wrote this like, what, 
3,000 years ago, he had no scientific knowledge of how stars are formed. So no scientific knowledge. So he attributes their creation to a god. Okay, you want to talk science? Let's talk scientific background or evidence. I, I want to I point for a moment to three aspects of creation that I think shout the existence of God. Okay, and, and the first two of the three I'm going to give you have to do with science. The first one is this, origin, the origin of creation. How did we get the universe? Now, if you could remember all, all the way back to your high school science class, some of you that was like yesterday, looking at you, some of you it was a long time ago, okay? But if you could remember back, there, there was a theory regarding the origin of the universe that lasted all the way into the mid-20th century. It was called the steady-state theory. Remember this? Ring a bell from science history? The steady-state history said the universe had no beginning. It, the, the universe was eternal. Well, that theory began to unravel in 1913 when astronomers discovered about a dozen galaxies close to the Earth that were moving away from us at high speed. And eventually, this outwardly propelled movement was, was accounted for by the Big Bang Theory. According to the Big Bang Theory, the universe did have a beginning. There was this gigantic fireball explosion. Interestingly, some scientists didn't like that discovery. A uh, prominent British astronomer by the name of Sir Arthur Eddington he spoke for his colleagues when he said back in 1931 that the notion of a beginning is repugnant to me. Now that's a weird thing to say, isn't it? A, a beginning to the universe, the notion of that is repugnant to me. Why repugnant? Because it pointed to God. Because it pointed to God. The law of causality says that everything with a beginning has a cause. Okay, everything with the beginning has a cause. If you're wondering why God doesn't have a beginning, it's, uh, it does, doesn't have a cause, it's because he doesn't have a beginning. But the universe does. We now know that scientifically. So there must have been some powerful first cause. A clue for the existence of God. Robert Jastrow is the founder of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He was amused at the reaction of some of his fellow scientists to this evidence that the universe has a beginning. And he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. And he closes his book, last page of the book reads like this. This is really amusing. He says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to cover the highest conquer, the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the rock, He's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> you follow that? If you want to know how the universe began, Jasper was saying, ask the theologians. They've had the right answer for years. It's God. The origin of creation points to God. Second aspect of creation that points to God, his design, its design. Someone has described the design argument with this analogy. They say every watch requires a watchmaker. If you're out walking in the woods someday and you see a Rolex on the path in front of you, how do you assume it got there? Okay, is uh, erosion? 
wind and rain, perhaps? Natural forces conspire to produce? No, of course not. You look at the watch and you know there's a designer behind it. And there's some poor fool who lost it there. Right? Design. Design. Our universe displays incredible design. From the smallest particle, the one cell organism, up to the, the biggest systems, the macro systems. In fact, scientists say it seems as if every big system has been fine-tuned. Listen to this. Every big system has been fine-tuned for the very purpose of sustaining human life here on Earth. Scientists call this the anthropic principle. Anthropos is a, a Greek word that means human. There are over 200 factors that account for Earth's ability to, to sustain human life and every one of them must be perfectly balanced or we wouldn't be here today having this conversation the anthropic principle right, let me give you a couple of examples uh, of it if, if our earth's atmosphere if, if it was less transparent than it is okay if it was denser thicker whatever then it wouldn't let in enough sunlight to sustain life but if it was more transparent than it is, we would be bombarded with solar radiation that would nuke everything. Okay, how about, how about this? The gravitational force of the universe. Okay, if the gravitational force was altered one part in 10 to the 39th power, that's 10 with 39 zeros after it, altered that much, then no stars could form, scientists say. We wouldn't have a sun. If the Earth's tilt, you know that the axis is on a tilt, right? If the tilt was a little bit this way or a little bit that way, the weather here would be far too cold or far too warm to sustain life. I could give you example after example after example of the anthropic principle. It sure seems like somebody, like somebody designed our planet to make it uniquely capable of sustaining human life. Fred Hoyle the great astronomer who coined the term originally the Big Bang, he, he said that his atheism had been greatly shaken by this evidence, this anthropic principle. Listen to what Hoyle writes. He says, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with the chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. A super intellect has been monkeying around. Uh, that would be God. <laughs> creation's origin, creation's design. Here's a third aspect of, of creation. This one's a non-scientific one that I think points to the existence of God. Beauty, the beauty of creation. Uh, Sue and I love to get away to northern Wisconsin. We go up to Door County. Uh, there's a little town we like to stay at that's right on the water and every clear evening around sunset we will take our lawn chairs down to the marina in town and we'll, we'll sit there many other people scores of people sometimes uh, up to a hundred people will be sitting there with their lawn chairs to watch the sunset and they'll be clicking pictures with their cameras they'll be taking selfies with the sunlight behind them and when the sun finally dips beneath the horizon everybody breaks out in applause I mean, it's just totally uh, spontaneous. The first time it happened, it caught me by surprise. And I suddenly realized, we're not applauding for the sun. 
We're applauding the artist who painted the sunscape. That's who we're applauding. See, we, we, we know behind every beautiful sculpture, there's, there's a Michelangelo who chiseled it. We know behind every a beautiful symphony we listen to, there's a Beethoven who composed it. We instinctively attribute beautiful works of art to a creator. Well, friends, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Creation points to God. That's our first clue. Clue number two, morality. Clue number two, morality. I want you to turn. We're going to look at uh, four or five different passages today, so you've got to keep your index finger licked and keep turning pages with me. Go over to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2. Uh, Sigmund Freud the great psychoanalyst was an atheist, and he said, that, you know, people have invented God, and the reason we've come up with this notion of God is every one of us, there, there's something missing in our father concept, okay? We're all disappointed to one extent or another in our human dad, and so we create this heavenly father who meets our needs. Now, now C.S. Lewis, who himself at one time was an atheist, later became a Christ follower, he says Freud is out to lunch on this. This is nonsense, that, that God is somehow wish fulfillment. Because, Lewis says, now follow this, he says if you wanted to create a heavenly father, it wouldn't be the God of the Bible. He said, granted, the God of the Bible is, is loving, but if, if you're trying to create a father to fill the gaps in your life, you would create someone who's just super benevolent and indulgent and, uh, you know, loves on you in ways that are sentimental and whatnot. Lewis says, this is not the God of the Bible. He's loving, but he, he's also deeply concerned about morality. In fact, he's given us a moral law that he expects us to obey. This is not the kind of God you'd create. Well, the Apostle Paul would agree with C.S. Lewis. You know, he would say, yes, this is a loving God, but he is so concerned about morality, he has hardwired it into every person he's created. He's written his law, as it were, on the human heart, in the human conscience. That's what Paul says in, in Romans 2. Now, Paul's writing to a group of people, uh, many of whom have come from a Jewish background, and they think their relationship with God, everything's cool because they've got God's law. They've got the Bible. Every Sabbath, they could go to synagogue. They could hear it. They could hear it read. They could hear it preached. With that as the background, let me pick it up at verse 13. Paul's got something startling to say to them. He said, it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Later on in Romans, Paul's going to say, and this is not good news because none of us obey it. Okay, so we're all in desperate need of a Savior. That's the point later on in Romans. Let me continue reading this passage. Verse 14, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, okay, they don't have the Bible, these people, when they still do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. Okay, they don't have the written word of God, but somehow they have this sense of right and wrong. Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. You know, if there is a moral law, 
that's not only written down in the Bible, but that's also written on our hearts. We have this instinctive sense of right and wrong, whether we've ever read the Bible or not. Where did this moral law come from? Do, doesn't it point to a lawgiver? Isn't this another clue for the existence of God? Now, some people will deny that there is a moral law. Some people will say, well, there is, there is no absolute standard of right and wrong. And if a friend of yours tells you that, I encourage you to keep your eye on that person because they, they will soon behave in a way that will give away the fact that they, they truly believe internally that there is a moral law. You know, one of the giveaways will be this. Watch what they do when somebody wrongs them. Okay, they'll say, well, there's no moral law against lying, but let somebody lie to them, and oh my goodness, will they get angry. Why getting angry? Yeah, there's nothing wrong here. You know? So, so there, is this, there is this innate sense. An, another behavior that they'll engage in is, is you'll find them from time to time explaining away questionable behavior. You know, they'll seek to justify themselves as to why they're drinking uh, so much or why they're sleeping with their girlfriend or why they don't go to church or, you know, why they haven't visited their grandmother in the convalescent home for years. So why, why are you trying to pacify your conscience like this? If there's no wrong, see, what you're doing is not wrong. Why, why are you so dead set on rationalizing your behavior? The, the fact is they instinctively know there is a moral law, and that law points to God. Now, with, without God, there's no moral law. Richard Dawkins, the scientist, the atheist I mentioned earlier, he was interviewed by a British journalist named Justin Brierley. Not Justin Bieber, okay? Justin Brierley. And they had this interesting exchange because Brierley wanted to know, he, he asked uh, Mr. Dawkins, he said, okay, if, if there's no God, then where do you come up with your value judgment? Where do you come up with your sense of morality? Listen to this exchange. Dawkins says, well, my value judgment itself could come from my evolutionary past. Briarly says, okay, so it's just as random, in a sense, as any product of evolution? Dawkins responds, well, yeah, you could say that. Briarly, okay, okay, but ultimately then, your belief... Let's say that rape is wrong, is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six? Dawkins' response, you could say that, yeah. Whoa. You take God out of the picture, you don't have a moral law, which means that you have a hard time determining whether anything, rape included, is really wrong. Now, now, some people would argue that there is a basis for morality that doesn't require a belief in God. So how do we get our sense of morality? Some people will say, well, we pick it up from society. Okay, our society determines collectively what is right and wrong, and we, we sort of go along with it. That's what informs our conscience. Really? How do you explain people who lived in Nazi Germany and yet found the mistreatment of Jews morally reprehensible? How do you explain those people? See, their society said it was okay. The government said it was okay. Their, their peers said it was okay. The media said it was okay because Jews are subhuman. Even some churches said it was okay. How do we explain people who, who said, no, this is not okay. This is morally wrong. It certainly wasn't. Their morality was not formed by a social construct. 
Other people say, well, our morality, it comes from, uh, from evolution, you see. By, uh, by nature, we, we tend to reject those things that cause us pain, and we gravitate toward those things that bring us pleasure. That's how we determine what's wrong, what's right. See, we, we minimize the things that bring us pain. We maximize the things that bring us pleasure. Right, okay. So how do you explain a young woman who says no to her boyfriend who wants to go to bed with her because there's this innate sense that, no, that wouldn't be right. See, this would bring her pleasure, no doubt. But there's something stronger going on here, something that says no. Or conversely, how do you explain the guy who rushes into a burning building to save somebody, even though he knows he could get hurt? This could be painful. But instead of minimizing pain, something overrides the system that says this is the right thing to do to run into this burning building. See, it's really tough to explain where our sense of morality comes from if it doesn't come from God. Morality is a major clue for the existence of God. Clue number three, longing. I love this one. I want you to turn with me to another passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That should keep you busy for a while trying to find Ecclesiastes. Actually, it's kind of easy. If you go to the middle of your Bible, Psalms, and you move to the right, okay, a couple of books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. As you're turning, I want to tell you about Francis Collins. Uh, Collins is a brilliant scientist. He's a geneticist. He's best known for his work on the uh, Human Genome Project, uh, the in-depth study of the structure of DNA. I mean, this dude's bright off the charts. He grew up in a home where there was no religious faith, nothing at all. And by the time he was done getting a PhD from Yale, he got a PhD in quantum mechanics and second order differential equations. I have no idea what that means. By the time he had gotten his PhD, he was a self-avowed atheist. Well, after Yale, Dr. Collins decided to go back to med school. He wanted to become a medical doctor. So now he goes to med school, and during his internship, he's working in a hospital with sick and dying patients. And he's struck by the fact that people of faith, particularly Christ followers, they have this sense of hope, this persevering sense that things are going to get better, if not in this world, then certainly in the world to come. They've got this peace about them. In fact, one day he's talking to a woman, a Christ follower. She's got angina. I mean, it's painful. It, it doesn't get better, only pro progressively gets worse. And she looks at him after sharing her faith with him, and she says, well, what do you believe? And his face flushes, and he stammers. He says, well, I'm, I'm not really sure. Let me read you what happens next. These are Dr. Collins' words. He says, that moment haunted me for several days. Did I not consider myself a scientist? Does a scientist draw conclusions without considering the data? Could there be a more important question than in, all of, in all of human existence than, is there a God? And yet there I found myself with a combination of willful blindness and something that could only be properly described as arrogance having avoided any serious consideration that God might be a real possibility. Suddenly all my arguments seemed very thin, and I had the sensation that the ice under my feet was cracking. Well, the ice did crack. 
Collins began a search for God, he eventually surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. But what was it that initially opened his mind to the Christian faith? There were some patients in his hospital whose faith in God provided them with a strong assurance that things were going to get better, if not in this life, than in the world to come. They knew where they were going. I want to suggest to you that this, this innate sense that there is something beyond this world points to the existence of God. If your Bible is open to Ecclesiastes 3, let me read you verse 11. This is a classic verse. He, meaning God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also, now get this, he has also set eternity, set our hearts, excuse me, set eternity in the human heart. God has set eternity in the human What does it mean that God has set eternity in the human heart? Well, eternity is both a quantity of time as well as a, as a quality of time. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying is, is our hearts, we, we have this instinctive longing for eternity, both the quantity and the quality side of it. Let me start with the quantity side of it. How many times have you said, oh, time flies? You ever said that? Or how many, how many times have you said something like this? Boy, it seems like yesterday that I would ever. I was picking up my uh, little 20-month-old granddaughter the other day, Charlotte. And as I picked her up, I had this deja vu experience. I thought, I'm picking up my daughter, Rachel, Charlotte's mommy. Because it's like yesterday that I did this, right? It's like 20-some years ago that I did this. Yikes. Some of you are thinking, Pastor Jim's getting old. <laughs> See, this is how old people talk. <laughs> time is flying. This is not just old people. See, if you just graduated from college... I'll bet you've said, you've looked back over the, the past four years, and it's like, where did my college career go? It seems like yesterday I walked on campus for freshman orientation, and it's gone. College is gone, like, right? You've said that. Of course you have. Where, where do we get this innate sense that life is fleeting? It's so incredibly brief. The writer of Ecclesiastes says it's because God has written eternity. He set eternity in our hearts. We instinctively know there's this longer period of time out there. And it's not just a quantity of time. I said it's also a quality of, of time. And there, there, there are flip sides to this, a negative side, a positive side. Negatively, we instinctively know that there's got to be a time when there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more injustice. Because when we watch the news or we see this stuff going on in the lives of people, what do we say? We say, this is not right. Don't we say that? This is not, something's wrong here. How do we know something's wrong? It's just the way it is. It's how things have evolved. You know, or conversely, on a positive side, there's something deep inside of us that longs for greater fulfillment than anything we experience in this world. I've got to tell you, I experienced a lot of fulfillment in my life. Got a great marriage, a dad of wonderful kids, now got three grandbabies, and I get to pastor this wonderful church. A lot of, but there are times when I long for more, something more. Where does that come from? 
C.S. Lewis has a wonderful explanation for it. Listen to this. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, that's because there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, it's because there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. Now listen to this. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experiences in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Oh, that is so good. You know, Lewis is one of those writers. There are some writers you read what they say and you say, oh, I, I could have written that. Lewis, you read Lewis and you say, you could lock me in a room for 10 years. I'd never come up with something that good. All right, let, let me read that last line. If I find in myself a desire which no experiences in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. God has set eternity in our hearts. Our deepest longings point to God. These longings are a clue to his existence. Clue number four, relationships. I'm going to take you to another text. This is really easy to find. It's the very first chapter of your Bible. So just turn to Genesis chapter 1 right inside the front cover of your Bible. I'm going to read you a very familiar verse. This is Genesis 1.27. It says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Okay, the Bible says that, that we've been made in the image of God. So what is, what is God's image like? Well, one of the things we know about God from reading the Bible is that, is that God is a, he's a three-in-one God. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons existing in one Godhead. And, and we know, and I could take you to passage after passage in Scripture that, that teaches this, we know that Father, Son, and Spirit have this incredibly close, harmonious, working relationship. They love each other. And so if there is a God... And this God has made us in his image, we would expect people to be relational beings. And isn't that exactly what we see in our lives? We operate best when we're in healthy relationships. We crave relationships. And I don't care if you're an introvert or an extrovert. Doesn't really matter. Even introverts crave great relationships. We don't thrive in aloneness. In fact, that's exactly what God says, says about humans in the next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 2, after he makes Adam, but before he makes Eve, drop down to chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. See, the fact that you and I need relationships points to the existence of a God who made us in his relational image. Friends, come on, we were not formed by impersonal forces of nature. You, you, you don't get personableness out of impersonal forces of nature. We're not simply the end product of some evolutionary process. We are the image-bearing creations of a relational God. And here's something you should know if you haven't figured it out yet. The relationship that you need most, the relationship that you crave most, is a relationship with God, the God who created you. 
Now, unfortunately, the Bible says that our sins have alienated us from this creator. Our sins get in the way of a genuine relationship with God. We are in need of reconciliation. Reconciliation is one of those big Bible words that pops up everywhere. That's exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was making reconciliation with God possible by paying for our sins. The sins that had disconnected us from God. Removing those sins that had become a wedge between us and a perfectly holy God. And so if you'll ask God to forgive your sins, if you will surrender your life to Christ, you can begin a relationship with God that will grow deeper and deeper and deeper. It'll become more satisfying than any other relationship in your life. And just last weekend at Christ Community Church across four campuses, 141 people at the close of the service, when I said, you want to surrender your life to Christ, stand up and then sit back down. 141 people stood up, sat down, and then after the service, went to the Welcome Center and picked up a Next Steps packet and said, I want to begin a relationship with God. Now, that's the first step in this relationship. If you want it to become an ongoing walk, there's obviously other things that, that, that need to be done. But that's step one. By the way, if you've never taken that first step, you know, we have crowds of people taking it on a big weekend like Easter, but hardly a weekend goes by that people don't take that step. And it's easiest to do just by going back to the Welcome Center at your campus after the service and saying, yeah, I want to do this surrender to Jesus thing. I want to begin a relationship with God and somebody will pray you through. How, how do we know that God exists? Well, we look for clues and today... We've considered four clues that, that point to God. you got creation, its origin, its design, its beauty. It all points to God. you got morality. We, we have this innate sense of right and, and wrong because we've been made in the image of a moral God who's planted his moral law in our, in our hearts. You've got a third clue being longing. We long for eternity, a quantity and a quality of time that we don't experience on this earth. you got the fourth clue of relationships. We're wired for relationships, especially a relationship with God. Now, as I, as I wrap things up today, I want to take a look at one last passage of Scripture. And this is really important, so I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Because we've been looking at intellectual arguments for God's existence, if you would, but I want to get down to a practical application here. Now, we've been talking about the existence of God. I've been encouraging you to, to accept this truth. Don't reject this truth. But in closing, I want to point out that there's more than one way to reject God's existence. There is more than one way to reject God's existence. In, in fact, I dare say you can accept, listen, you can accept all the evidence I just gave you. You could be a card-carrying believer intellectually and yet reject God in a practical sense every day by the way you live. So this is what Paul's after in Romans chapter 1. We're going to pick it up at verse 20. Let me read several verses for you. He says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. This is what we've been saying. Just look at creation. Creation points to God. You can't miss it. Paul continues, But although they knew God, 
You know, they could see God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Drop down to verse 25. They exchanged, listen, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served creative things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now, I want to park on that last verse, verse 25. Paul says that if we really believe in the one true living God, we will, we will worship and serve him. And the alternative, the alternative to worshiping and serving the one true living God is to worship and serve what? Verse 25, call it out. Created things. Now, the Bible has a word for this misdirected worship. When we put other things in place of God, when other things get our worship, when we serve other things, what does the Bible call that? Idolatry. Now, idolatry is such a severe-sounding word, isn't it? But you need to know that it's, it's the most commonly mentioned sin in all of Scripture. So it must be pretty prevalent among us. Must be an easy sin to slip into. John Calvin, the famous Christian theologian, 16th century, he said that our, our, our hearts have this natural tendency to create idols. In fact, he said our hearts are an idol factory. <laughs> okay? We were constantly manufacturing idols in our lives. Sometimes we make idols out of bad, destructive things. You can be here today and your, your idol may be alcohol. That's what you worship, that's your fix, that's your, your go-to. Your, your God, your idol may be pornography. It may be revenge. There's somebody, you know, you're just consumed with getting even with. It may be materialism. You go from one purchase to another. Really, that's your idol. Your heart is set on it. Or sometimes we make idols out of good, wholesome things. Sometimes we make idols out of our jobs. Or we make idols out of our grandkids. We, we make idols out of sports. I, I think that's got to be one of the biggest idols in America today. You know, several weeks ago, a good friend of mine, he said one of his kids who plays on a, a sports team, their team was invited to participate in a tournament. The tournament, get this, the tournament started on Good Friday and it ran through Easter. Good old suburban America, idolatry is alive and well. You take the, the biggest weekend of the year for worshiping God in Christian circles and you give it to something else. Really. God hates idolatry. You pick that up in Scripture. He hates it when we make idols out of things, when we put things in place of him. And let me tell you why he hates it. He hates idolatry because he loves you. And he knows that if you're putting your hope in things or in somebody other than him, you're bound to be disappointed. I mean, your, your next difficult time may be later today. It may be a week from now, maybe a month from now. But you're going to turn to your idol for solace, for comfort, for help. And you're going to find, doesn't matter what your idol is, whether it's your job, your grandkids, your sports, what, whatever. You know, not going to be there for you. And what you're going to discover is when you need God most, God's going to seem remote. He's going to seem distant because you've been treating him as if he doesn't exist, like he's not really God. Other things are God for you. 
So friends, we need, to, we need to regularly search our hearts and say, okay, what are the, if, if Calvin is right and our hearts are an idle factory, we're constantly manufacturing them, you know, you push them down in one area, they're going to pop up somewhere else. We got to be relentless in removing the idols from our lives and determining that we're going to worship, we're going to serve the one true God. If you don't worship and serve him, you're going to worship and serve something. Because that's how we're designed to worship. You're going to worship something or somebody. I'm going to ask you to bow in closing prayer with me. Let's bow before the Lord. When we're done praying, our teams are going to come lead us in a closing song. So at all four campuses, I'm going to encourage the worship team to take the stage. We're going to collect our, our offering. By the way, as you're bowed before God, that's a good way to say, God, you're my God. It's a good way to say materialism is not my God. The other stuff I could purchase with this money, it's not my God. God is my God. That's why I participate in an offering. So, God, as we come before you across four campuses, we just take a moment, a quiet, reflective moment, and we invite you by your spirit to put your finger on any idols in our lives. What is it we put our hope and trust in, God? What gets our best time? What gets our best effort? What gets our financial investment? What is it that takes your place? We want you to be our God. We, we don't want to just say intellectually, I know that God exists. We want to behave as people who know God exists and who, whose God is foremost in their lives. That's the kind of people we want to be. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.